Thanks, everybody. I love this little hall. It's so charming to be in here with you. So I am going to read uh, from the new book, Zoologies. How's the audio? Is it good? Good. And then I will uh, leave some time to read a few poems uh, after that. But I'd like to give you a sense of this collection. I, it's something I've worked on for a long time, 10 years. Ridiculous, I know. But it's coming out. Uh, 32 short essays, each one focused on uh, an animal. And it, it really came out of my conviction that uh, the one story we keep hearing about animals is that they're all leaving the planet and it's our fault. And there's this climate of elegy, which is, of course, a, a true one. Uh, and yet, it still remains that animals have so much to do with how we define ourselves and think about our place in the planet. And the whole register of emotions uh, can be plucked by encounters with animals, predictable and unpredictable. And so I tried to find the broadest range possible of uh, encounters and experiences with animals. So I selected a few uh, excerpts and short pieces that I hope will um, uh, give you that sense and, and uh, also encourage you to look at the book when it comes out in, I think, September. So it, it, uh, I, I like to say that uh, when I was three and a half years old, I was uh, attacked by two dogs uh, in the woods in Connecticut. And uh, I don't have a memory of, the, of that. It's not a trauma. But I honestly believe that in some strange way that I can't really describe or understand, I feel that I am owned by the animal kingdom, <laughs> that I know something about what it is to be an animal on an animal planet. Thank you, TV. So that's a grounding uh, as well for this book. A cormorant the size of a human thumb has been found in the Holy Fells cave in Germany's Swabian Alps. One of three figurines carved from mammoth ivory, the find provides the earliest evidence that our human ancestors made figurative art more than 30,000 years ago, the period during which bison, mammoth, and lion images began to transform European caves into shrines. All three cavings in the recently discovered, carvings in the recently discovered cache depict animals, one horse's head, one half lion, half human creature, and one bird with body and neck extended into the graceful tension of a cormorant rising through water's surface after a feasting dive, rising from the invisible underwater world into the air. The beauty of animals called these ancestors to acts of creation. The figures, which do not appear to be the work of amateurs, though they may be among the earliest artworks made by human beings, are polished from constant handling, as one might rub a beach stone or hardwood burl, letting the oil of one's fingers raise the object's sheen, while the thumb's repetitive motion against that smoothness leads the mind to that clean place one comes to when staring into space and thinking. Rather than being savages, our forebears were sculptors, painters, and contemplators, their minds like ours in a daydream. As long as we've been human, we've been making art. 
Or perhaps it is more accurate to place this eagerness to participate in creation at the center of what it is to be the animal we are. As long as we've been making art, we've been human. Art from the primal world draws the imagination back into the unthinkably deep well of time it took for the human mind as we know it to evolve. We may have been around as tool makers, language users, dietary omnivores, cosmological celebrants, nomadic socializers, and combatants for 500,000 to 2 million years, depending what markers you use to start measuring proto-humanity. But it is not until 40,000 to 100,000 years ago that fossil forms look indistinguishable from those of modern human beings. And as we dig up more and more of the last remote places on Earth, looking for the bones that will teach us the nature of what we are, we keep turning up art and asking, what does it mean? It means what it is. Mammoth tusk transformed to water bird by a creature who, seeing the beauty and mystery of the bird, was moved to hold it in mind and hand, to become intimate with the bird, and so carved a likeness that would preserve and keep it close. And so begins the long human hating of art, nature, and the idea of the transcendent. The bird transcends the limits of its birdness by flying through water, and the carving transcends the circumstance of the human encounter with the water bird, prolonging the interaction for as long as the hand and mind desire, and providing the opportunity to share it with others. Our deepest human memory, one so deep we cannot see the shape of it on the surface of our thinking, may be our capacity to read and preserve and share our encounters with animals. Early humans may have learned this capacity in surviving the threat of predators, but we get to carry it forward as an acuity to animal beauty that gives meaning to our lives. The next one, is as much about people as it is about animals, which actually <laughs> all of this book is. <laughs> um, but I wanted to read it because it's set in this landscape, and there are some uh, friends here who I have known since the time of this event that triggered this essay. I lived in this area from 1969 to 1979, <clears throat> and this comes from that period. Dog tags. Clamp the S-hook to the collar, and the dog has permission to live. If he gets lost, the person who finds him can get your address and bring him home to you. If he gets hit by a car, someone will deliver a definition for the grief you feel at the loss of his company. Every year or two, you will renew his license, using pliers or a vice grip to detach the old tag and attach the new one. Then the dog will prance around the living room, shaking his head, for a few moments feeling the collar that he had forgotten he wears. You will hear him jingle in the house at night as he scratches his fleas. His fleas, like he is your dog, though unlike this, in that he takes no pleasure in their companionship. Because of the metallic jingle, you will hear him stir, turn, and resettle in the night. A stranger who once has been attacked, such a sweet dog, he would never, 
will be grateful for the music of dog tags that give warning before the bark or growl or baring of teeth that will trigger the startle reflex, the body's memory of a trauma the mind has repressed. Once a person has known teeth in her flesh, the dog tags will no longer convince her that anyone owns the dog's wildness except the dog. Domestic only means he has agreed to live in the house and we have agreed to welcome him there. Men and women wear dog tags too, to identify their bodies. In 2001, a 27-year-old man traveling in Ho Chi Minh City to scout for business opportunities found the dog tags of American soldiers hanging on a string in a back alley market not frequented by tourists. They were for sale, six or seven for one dollar. He was disgusted. He could not stop thinking about them. Were they real or fake? He returned to buy 620 of them and brought them home. Some of the dog tags belong to men who are still living. 30 years after leaving Vietnam, where each one of them must have left a piece of his soul, the soldiers got back their IDs. For them, too, the dog tags meant, in retrospect, permission to live. Thirty years after their sons died in Vietnam, some parents got their dog tags. One mother said she felt joy to hold them. For her, they meant identifying with her son's body, and he was real and tangible, at least in her mind, as had been the child whose back she had stroked as he fell into sleep on troubled nights. One morning in Vermont, when I lived simple and remote, visitors rare, and reminding me that the world extended beyond my house and barn and neighborhood, I picked up a hitchhiker. This was near the Canadian border, so near I had gone several times to a club the size of my living room in the eastern townships of Quebec to hear Jesse Winchester perform. The Memphis-raised folk singer and draft resistor had become famous for his love song, Yankee Lady, but he could not perform in the United States without being arrested for evading his 1967 draft notice. That war was everywhere in American society, and it showed up quietly on my dirt road that morning. The hitchhiker looked about the age I then was, 24, 25. He was bearded, scruffy, and carried a dirty backpack, the sartorial style signifying, it seemed to me then, his solidarity with resisting the trim exterior that belied America's vicious heart. To be messy and grow wild was to be truthful about the reality that our nation was a mess and the war had gone wild a ferocity no one's tidy rhetoric could control. But appearances rarely are what they seem, and I realized soon that I had projected my own ideology on the stranger instead of learning the story that had brought him to this spot on his tattered map. I know this is beginning to sound like one of those tales we call a shaggy dog story. So much digression, you can't see where you're going. I brought the man to my house for lunch, gave him homemade soup and bread. He wanted a lift a few miles down the road and I agreed to take him. He pointed to the green area on the map, saying it looked like the biggest stretch of uninhabited forest in the vicinity, and, and asked me if that were true. I said yes, and pointed out the window to the cold hollow mountains. 
which had been my comfort in the landscape that taught me I belong to something larger and older and wiser than human life. He told me he wanted to see if he could survive in the, in the wild with nothing but his pocket knife and sleeping bag. Did he even have a sleeping bag? I remember so little of this, only that I thought he was crazy or suicidal or running from something that must have seemed to him worse than death. It was late summer, and in that region, winter brought killing cold weeks when the morning temperature would register at 40 below. Why didn't I ask the stranger where he had come from and why? What would, I have, what would it have been? I was afraid of him, and I wanted to protect him and the contradiction immobilized my good intentions. After lunch, I drove him as far as a car could go on the dirt road that dead ends on a saddle of those forested mountains. This looks good, he said. The maple trees had already lost their leaves and lay crisp with frost on the hard packed ground. I stopped the car. Are you sure? I began to see that I might be helping a man to kill himself. Yes, he said and his eyes were sure. What was unsaid hung around us like acrid smoke. Will you do me a favor, he asked. What? He reached in his pocket and took out a set of dog tags hanging on their chain. Put these in the nearest US mailbox. I stared at him. It's okay, he said. I took the tags. I let him out. He walked up slope into the woods, I wanted to call out to him, but what could I have said? I drove to town, put the dog tags in a mail drop at the post office. I felt as if I were committing a crime. I cannot say what his intentions were. Perhaps he'd gone AWOL and would hike north to the border for amnesty. Perhaps he died in the cold woods with not one thing on his body to identify him, wanting to be reduced to the animal because he felt himself no longer to be human. There were so many men, mostly men in those years, who were lost or could not find a way out of the arguments in their heads over what they had done or not done in the war. I felt ugly to myself, as if by handing in the tags I was treating a man as if he meant less to me than a dog. I regret still that I did nothing more to help him. What would that have been? Send a letter to his family explaining his confident resolve? Perhaps this account is that letter. Perhaps we, every one of us who has no faith in war, are his family. All right, I think I'd like to take you to the Pacific Northwest on a more of a, um, I guess we might say, a traditional nature essay, <laughs> if there is one anymore. Um, I talked in my talk the other day about work I'd done at the H.J. Andrews Experimental Forest in, uh, on the western slopes of the Cascades in Oregon. And so this is an account of being up in that research forest with the head of the Northern Spotted Owl team as he was going on his uh, routine um, research trip um, to visit uh, the owls that he was studying. Owl watching in the experimental forest. 
Steve Akers and I clamor over vine maple and Oregon grape, a tangled mess of scrub that covers Hardy Ridge high over Cougar Reservoir. This terrain is better suited to flying squirrels and red-backed voles than to a mildly arthritic bipedal primate. But here I am on a sun-drenched morning in May, hiking with the head of the Northern Spotted Owl research team from the H.J. Andrews Experimental Forest and filled with unaccountable joy. Last night, Steve was orienteering toward an owl that was calling from a mile away. He set a compass point and hiked into the dark forest toward the call, but never found the bird. He's been working on the owl study for seven years, on wildlife field work for 21. Today, we're looking for a spotted owl that has been in the study for 12 years, one habituated to the visits of field scientists. Extensive field study of this species has been conducted for at least a decade prior to its 1990 designation as threatened under the Endangered Species Act. The northern spotted owl is perhaps the most studied bird in the world, inspiring unprecedented collaboration among scientists, government agencies, universities, and landowners. We break into an opening shaded by a small stand of firs, trees not super old, as we've seen along the Mackenzie River Trail, where there are giants over 600 years old, but stately elders nonetheless. The ground is dappled with light, the air cool and damp. The hillside slopes steeply below. Ahead of me, Steve hoots the four-note location call. sort of. <laughs> the last syllable descends with a slight warble. No response. Then he turns and a quiet face, a quiet, quiet smile opens on his face. He has the bright and easy look of a man who knows how lucky he is to love his work. He points over my left shoulder. Silent, she's perched on a small understory branch 20 feet up. She's watching us, waiting for us to notice her. She knows the contract. She will give us data, we will give her mice. After three decades of research on the northern spotted owl, scientists have gained a wealth of understanding about this creature's life history. Each spring, the field crew checks nesting pairs for their reproductive status and bans fledglings to include them in future surveys. The data led in 1994 to the Northwest Forest Plan, which decreased the rate of logging and altered how it's done, giving the owls and their entire ecosystem a better chance at survival. But data cannot compare to the experience of that deep well of attention, quiet, and presence that is the owl. She has a spotted breast, a long barred tail, and tawny facial discs with brown semicircles fringing her face, and back-to-back -back white parentheses framing her eyes. These markings give the impression that her eyes are the size of her head. The blackness of her pupils is so pure that they look like portals into the universe. When Steve takes the first mouse out of his aerated Tupperware container, lifting it by its tail and placing it on a log, the owl drops, silent as air, down through the branches and closes her talon. Talons. She lofts back up to the branch and scans around. She may be looking to see if a goshawk is near. Whatever constitutes a threat to her does not include us. How rare it is to have more than a fleeting glimpse of a, of a creature in the wild. Still clutching the mouse, she burps up a pellet that plops to the ground, gives us a nonchalant look, then gulps down her meal. You want to see the parachute drop, Steve asks with a grin. 
The white mice have been raised in captivity, and their sense of space has been so constrained that when he unsnaps the lid, they stretch their heads up and look around, but make no attempt to run away. The world to them is the size of the container in which they find themselves. He places a second mouse on the log, and the owl billows out her wings, buoying herself down to us. It takes a moment to understand why her flight catches me each time by surprise. No riffle, no flutter of resistance through the feathers. She's evolved for this easy drop onto the prey. The spotted owl is a sit-and-wait hunter, unlike the goshawk, which will tear through the woods in pursuit. The fringed edge of her wing reduces noise and increases drag, making this strategy a good match of form with function. Steve collects the pellet and we poke the slimy gray blob of indigestible fur and bones from the past day. The bones are very delicate, still shiny with the life that left them, some nearly two inches long. Maybe a wood rat, Steve says. Through binoculars, he can see the owl's identification band. Last year, a male was keeping this female company, a two-year-old from nearby Kings Creek. This year, so far, she appears to be alone. The owl team's last visit to this site was one month ago. How about the side grab? He might be a dad boasting about the agility of his soccer-playing daughter. He isn't making the owl perform for our enjoyment. These flight skills are as natural to the owl as stepping over a crack in a sidewalk is to us. The mouse is barely out of his hand, scurrying in confusion on the tree trunk that rises beside me when the owl swoops onto it, talons leading, and picks it off right beside my shoulder. The catch happens so fast that she's flying away by the time I realize she's grabbed the prey, killing it instantly in her grip. She flies up to the snag broken off 40 feet above the ground and tucks the mouse carefully into the jagged wood. This is a cache, not a nest. If she'd been delivering food to her young, the nest would be a high platform in a tree. She checks to be sure the mouse is well hidden. If she does have nestlings, she'll come back later for takeout. The spotted owl research protocol demands that we spend an hour with the bird. She's had her limit of commercially raised albino mice, so now we sit to see what she does, and if what she does will tell us whether she has a mate or nestlings. This suits my research protocol just fine. I'm here as part of the Long-Term Ecological Reflections Project initiated by philosopher Kathleen Dean Moore and U.S. Forest Service geologist, geologist Fred Swanson. Like many of the experiments conducted in and around the Andrews Forest, my humanistic assignment is part of a project intended to last 200 years. This time frame was inspired by a hallmark study being conducted in the Andrews, the log decomposition study. 200 years is roughly the lifetime of the giant logs left to rot on the forest floor. And during that time, successive teams of scientists will observe and measure the dead wood's contribution to the forest regeneration. Writers, too, are invited to, vis to visit several sites in the forest and to leave an account of their experience. The hope of this project is that by careful and sustained observation, a testimony on behalf of the forest will have kept it alive. The owl doesn't make a sound. She perches on a branch high above us. She is still. She watches us. She reaches her head forward, 
the pre-pounce lean, Steve calls it, as if she has seen some prey on the ground. The song of a thrush flutters through the quiet, the auditory equivalent of seeing an orchid in the forest. Beauty is what I came here for, a beauty enhanced, not diminished by science. If I had only my senses to work with, how much thinner would be the experience? What a record we might have of the world's hidden beauty if field scientists and poets routinely spent time in one another's company. A young tree, broken and caught between two others, creaks to the rhythm of the wind. How well the owl must know this sound. Does she anticipate the crash of its falling? What is the consciousness of a spotted owl? There she perches, perceiving us, and here we sit, perceiving her. We exchange the long, slow, interspecies stare. No fear, no threat, only the confusing mystery of the other. Steve knows her language well enough to speak a few words, the location call, the bark of aggression. Perhaps that, perhaps that means she thinks we are owls. We do not look like owls, but we do briefly behave like owls, catching and offering prey, being still, and turning our eyes to the forest. What are you? What are you? That's the conversation we have with our eyes. What will you do next? What will you do next? I keep falling into the owl's eyes. Then we stand up and hike down from that high place. Okay, let's do something very, very different. So when I was working on this book, I, you know, I was trying to find unusual animal stories based in experience, and I told myself I'm not going to take any engagements anywhere unless I think I can get an animal story out of it, because otherwise, you know, I'm screwed. Because, so, you know, you don't get invited to the forest to, you know, give a lecture every day of the week. So... So I was invited to give a lecture in Los Angeles. I said, all right, you're going to do it. You're going to find an animal story. <laughs> this is the story I found. Oh, yeah, somebody wanted something sexy. This is a little bit sexy. Not super, but, you know, what do you want, man? Okay, Hood River Oyster. They're farmed up in the Pacific Northwest, Hood River Oysters. You probably eat them a lot in <clears throat> restaurants all around. I'm not sure when I began to notice the absence of birds. I'd come to Los Angeles for the weekend to speak about science and the Western American imagination. I lamented the split between science and religion that has widened since Darwin. I might have said that as an animist, I see nature as God. Or I might not have said this, because it would have made me feel undressed in public. God is like sex best experienced with a very small audience, or none at all. A Native American man in the audience complained that we could not solve the problems in our relationships with nature until we solved the problems of dominance and rank. I said we followed the pathway of the chimp with chest-thumping, ground-drumming, bullying, assault, and mutilation as very old habits in the primate line. That doesn't mean this is the only path we can follow through the genetic undergrowth. Bonobos, with whom we also share a common ancestor, resolve conflicts by diffusing hostility with affection and sexual play. They are mutualists. I am a cyanimist, I concluded, 
the word bubbling up from nowhere, from the same old mind that split from the apes. I'm not sure when I began to notice the absence of birds, certainly not when I checked into the Los Angeles Biltmore, craning at the sky-high tropical fool-the-eye mural, depicting split-leaf philodendrons and birds of paradise. Not when I walked up Bunker Hill to admire the glint and curve of Frank Gehry's Disney concert hall. But now that I think back, not a pigeon or sparrow bothered me for crumbs when I sat in the patio to enjoy my coffee and scone. Not a feathery rustling passed overhead when I walked back on the overpass, stopping to study the parking lot below. Movie paraphernalia had caught my eye, four Silver Range Rovers, eight black limos, coil after coil of electrical wire, rows of Klieg lights, tripod stands, first aid van, trailers for the stars to change their clothes, all lined up and waiting for action, not a soul in sight. Later, at the Getty Museum, archaic leaf and, leaf and shell prints marked the travertine, but not one dime-sized splatter of limey shit appeared anywhere on the billion-dollar campus. There had not even been any dogs. Unlike in Prague, where I'd seen a wolf on the tram, its off-duty muzzle hanging loosely like a necklace, or in New York City, where professional dog walkers gather a dozen clients from Upper West Side apartments, experienced urban dogs who can walk a mile, held like a bouquet in the dog walker's hand and never tangle their leashes. In Los Angeles, I saw a brown bear on a billboard. A California bank promoting the animal that had been absent from the California landscape since 1922. By this time, I was ravenous. I walked down Grand Avenue to the water grill, more empty limos waiting for more stars, white hummers long as a bus, two black stretch Lincolns. I cracked the restaurant's door, the place buzzing with celebrity and desire. I snaked through the crowd to sit at the bar, ordered a Grey Goose martini, and watched the barman open oysters with one flit of the knife. He knew how to keep everyone happy. Champagne for the fledgling lovers sitting beside me, though they already were blasted. The woman spinning on her stool as she laughed and flung her hair, as seductive as a pirouetting sandhill crane. Conversation for the middle-aged lesbians down the line who murmured like wood ducks floating on a calm sea. Benign neglect for the woman sitting alone, nursing her vodka and writing in a notebook, chicken scratch made hastily in the semi-dark bar. The first time the woman hit me with her hair, I startled, as if she'd spilled my cocktail. Young, perhaps Indonesian with curry-colored skin, dressed in saffron and coral brocade as tight as reptile skin, she was wrapped in the gaze of her companion, he was young, though older than the woman, skinny and white. His shirt was unbuttoned in that 70s way, nearly to his belly. I thought of Mark Wahlberg when he played the porn star in Boogie Nights. His impressive, though pathetically fake, member. The woman had long, expensive hair, dyed in a weave of brunette, strawberry blonde, and platinum strands. It was thick hair and heavy with product. I began to think she aspired to the screen, and he was making promises. They fed oysters to each other, tipping the shells so that the milky flesh would slide through the portals of one another's lips. 
They twined forearms to sip champagne while staring into the oil wells of each other's eyes. It was a parody of love, a B-movie of love, a staged reading of love's stale and empty lines, big fat oysters, narrow flutes of champagne. The more drunk they got, the more their outsized laughter spread like a toxic spill. The close-cropped women down the bar asked about the oysters. Are they farmed? The barman said, no, they're wild. Paused a beat. Well, they're grown on strings that hang in the ocean. I mean, they're in the ocean. So when you say farmed, I think confined. I ordered the farm-raised sturgeon. Then the hair again whipped across my shoulder. The acolyte spinning away from her companion, flinging her hair as in a commercial for shampoo, yet oblivious to anything except her arrows for the unbuttoned man. I said nothing except to myself, to whom I repeated, if she hits me one more time with her hair. And she did. <laughs> After which I again did nothing but watch the oyster slide from the man's shell into her pretty pink mouth, the little sea thing released from its briny, transsexual life. Down it went into her red throat, the creature whole and alive, gills, gonads, three-chambered minuscule heart and lacy black mantle, a few grains of grit and nacre. It was like watching something I remembered from another life, not the sex of it, but the animal appetite, life taking life into its savoring throat. It was like watching myself swinging in the trees, flying through the clatter of monkeys, macaws, and operatic frogs, the old music of earth, savage, joyful, and lost. How you doing? Uh, you want some poems? Or you want a far out sci-fi one, short, really short? Let's do some poems. Um, so, I'll read you a few poems from Rope. Um, and actually, I think I'll read you a poem that I wrote today. Uh, it's always such a gift to be given time. Thank you, Vermont Studio Center. But I'll start with Pandora. Pandora on Prozac. That was thousands of years ago, when everyone was a child, and supper grew on trees faster than we could harvest. The troubles had not begun. Earth asked so little of us, our eyes blinded with sugary garlands. Gathering anthuriums and orchids to arrange in vases was the hardest work. And then for the rest of the day, there was the locked box. Who can blame us that we were drawn to what we couldn't see or touch? The box wrapped in gold cord which we'd kneel beside to try picking the fibers loose, never intending to undo the seal. 
Now, whatever we do in this house, we feel there's something else we should be doing or something we should be doing differently. The arguments never stop. The revelry of the hiveless swarm. So let me read you this poem I wrote today. I mean, this is, um, we'll see. Um, I, I have uh, had a period, which my daughter likes to call the dying time. We've lost a lot of people in our family. My parents are both dead. My mother at 102, so I'm not really, you know, in a deep lamentation. It was time, and she was really, really ready to go. My brother died a couple of years ago. So I've been writing a lot of poems about grief and trying to get to the other side of it. Um, I, I'm, I'm actually thinking this poem may be one that does. So this is a poem that goes back to my childhood, and it's called The Scripts. My glamorous mother has finished another play. I'm on my knees in the living room, riding the seafoam green carpet of her dreams. Fieldstone fireplace, bay windows perched like a proscenium overlooking the Connecticut woods. We're an easy train ride from New York, where it all happens. My father playing Herod and Oscar Wilde's Salome, learning to act homeless by sleeping on a bench in the Bowery, a rope across his chest to keep the indigent upright. Early radio, a friend called to say, I've got dead air, come on over and help me. A guy played cello, my father read the love songs of Hafiz. My mother heard him and sent a letter, disguising her name so she couldn't be found. But he found her, and she said, oh no, I never wanted to meet you. And they spent their lives together. Theater, their great and unattainable love. Their romance, a pact to stand together against the lack they carried since childhood, needing some intensity of regard they could supply each other. I have the love letters of the dead to prove it. I have the photograph of my mother dressed as vamp, say, Gloria Swanson's idea of herself in Sunset Boulevard, a black lace flapper dress, gigantic black boa draped bicep to bicep so the shoulders remain sculpturally clear, earrings like bunches of grapes, manicured hands draped one over the other just so, marcelled hair, the alabaster skin of youth, the eyes cold, and though she is beautiful, there is a cold and imperious quality to her. No invitation to touch, just witness the costumed beauty and she'll be happy. I'm punching holes in the pages, stacks of onion skin white slipped into the bite of three-ring punch, crunching through, slipping pages on brackets in binder, stacking them so neatly, pleasure in watching the script thicken to become a finished thing after months of my mother's seclusion in the tiny office, midway up the stairs, command module perched over the woods, the room smelled of pencil shavings, lead, and cigarette ash. My parents are having martinis, and the joy of completion fills the room. This is the moment before disappointment returns. The script 
goes into the pile stacked on shelves above the typewriter. I'm ready for the lines. I guess I just have no talent. Oh, darling, don't say that. You're brilliant. Well, I'll just have to write another. Door closed, clackety-clack. But now, in the eternal moment of their dreams, I'm doing my job, and we are all together in the living room. And I belong to them, and I carry them weightless into the afterlife. Um, okay, two more poems. So another piece from the Andrews um, Forest, and uh, this is the poem I, I spoke about in our um, conversation the other day. Um, the Log Decomposition Site, which is a site for um, uh, work in morticulture, 200 years of studying dead logs. And that's uh, so my... Um, Earth scientist colleague there said that he, after I wrote this, he said, I think Allison did her, got her grief counseling from the forest. It was just when my mother was trying to die and not able to do it yet. This poem meant a lot to her in the last year of her life. This ground made of trees. The giants have fallen. I think I can hear the echo of their slow composition the centuries passing as note by note, they fall into the forest's silent music. Moss has run over their backs. Mushrooms have sprung from the moss. Mold has coated the fungal caps. And the heartwood has given itself to muffled percussion of insect and microbe, that carpet of sound that gives the forest its rhythm. A nuthatch twits or a vole cheeps. The scent of decay rises like steam from a stew pot. Anywhere I set my foot, a million lives work at metabolizing what has gone before them. The day is shortening, and the winter wrens have something to say about that. I can almost give thanks that the soil will claim me, but first, Allow me, dear life, a few more words of praise for this ground made of trees where everything is an invitation to lie down in the moss for good and become finally really useful, to pull closed the drapery of lichen and let the night birds call me home. All right, I'll end with, uh, so we all hate the didactic and preachy uh, environmental writing and art, and we don't do it. As much as we want to say, get your fucking act together out there, world. Uh, but I, uh, you know, in my attempt to love all species, have at times tried to uh, be didactic with myself and instruct myself to love the least lovable among them. And uh, this poem is an exercise in that uh, spiritual endeavor. And it is uh, dedicated to mosquitoes. You know that it's only the females who take our blood. Yes, it's a little science fact for you, that they, which they, because they need it in their breeding cycle, which comes up in this poem. 
I went to a little uninhabited island with a friend to take photographs at sunset up in the Bay of Fundy, and uh, we went at dusk. We didn't turn our little tank tops and no bug spray, and there was this bog pond. I mean, like, what were we thinking? You know, duh, this is what happened. <laughs> Mosquitoes. First came the scouts who felt our sweat in the air and understood our need to make a sacrifice. We were so large and burdened with all we had carried, our blood too rich for our own good. They understood that we could give what they needed and never miss it. Then came the throng encircling our heads like acoustic halos, droning with the me, me, me of appetite. We understood their pleasure to find such hairless beasts so easy to open and drink. We understood their female ardor to breed and how little they had to go on considering the protein required to make their million-fold eggs. Vibrant, available, and hot, we gave our flesh in selfless service to their future. Thank you. Thank you.